team, Ben Nash here. I'm one of the co-founders at XY Advisor and founder of the rapidly growing Pivot Wealth, which is my business baby. I started from scratch about eight years ago, and I've since scaled up to become one of Australia's better known financial advice companies for high income accumulators. You can join me every Tuesday as I have the pleasure of furthering my own knowledge by interviewing some of the best people in our industry and beyond to improve every part of what we do with our advice process. We're currently hiring financial advisors and associates, so if our approach resonates, you can learn more at pivotwealth.com.au forward slash careers. Open Invest is an innovative Melbourne-based investment platform, giving Australians access to investment portfolios managed by the world's leading investment managers, including BlackRock, JP Morgan, and Schroders. It's ideal for clients and prospects you can't support via traditional financial advice-led portfolio management. Or, if you have your own well-resourced and experienced portfolio management team, Open Invest can customise their tech to give your firm its own digital investing solution. Your brand, your portfolios, your content, accessible directly from your website via general advice. Hey guys, Ben Nash from the XY Advisor crew, and today I'm pumped to be here with Matt Leach, who has told me to just introduce him as legend. So... (laughs) Maybe I'll leave it there and let and let him do the talking. Uh, Matt, thanks for joining us, buddy. Thanks for having me, Ben. It's good to be here. Oh, mate, look, I'm keen to I'm keen to unpack your story because it is a an interesting one. You've been in the industry for um, you know for for a little while. Your baby face doesn't give that away, but um, uh, gone through a few changes in that time. So I'm keen to unpack that and some of the lessons that have come from that. So maybe we'll start there. Can you just tell us about your your evolution as a, as an advisor and how you've ended up where you are today? Yeah, it's kind of probably like a lot of advisors out there. I, I fell into the industry. Um, my first kind of exposure was sitting at the the dining table with my parents and their advisor. Um, so a lot of people have probably heard my sort of backstory before, but I had a special needs sister, and so my parents were trying to obviously be very prudent around what they're doing and planning for the future. And um, I really sort of commended them for that. But I didn't realize there was all these things around money. So I was really interested sitting at the dining table and hearing what the advisor had to say. So that was my first experience. Probably a few years later, I actually ended up working for him as an advisor, purely because I was looking for a a job that I could get into where I, you know, had to wear (laughs) not gym shorts. (laughs) Working at a gym for a while, I I better get a job where I'm not wearing gym shorts anymore. (laughs) So... I'm trying to get a job where I can wear gym shorts. <laughs> go the other way. Times have changed, man. You're better <laughs> off if you wear hoodies these days. But, um, yeah, so that was my first experience. He sort of worked in an AMP firm, one-man band, when that really worked. Um, did that for a year, sort of got my diploma, and that was a really interesting experience. Um, didn't know what I was doing, didn't know uh, much apart from super rollovers and insurance. I think that's kind of... I think I was about 22 at the time. Um, and where I used to get clients was hopefully running into them at the shopping center <laughs> and then try and book an appointment. That was how I started. And it was it was very stressful and I had no idea what I was doing. So after that, I did a year with um, a private, private licensed firm, um, which used to work in with sort of Deloitte um, staff. So we'd go sit in their offices and try and deliver some advice and help them individually. Um, where'd I go to from there? And then I did... Quite a few years at um, PSK, which was a, um, a chartered firm, which was probably where I got most of my my experience. 
uh, across the exposure to different things out there that buyers agents and the estate planning piece and real holistic planning, the tax side of it. Um, so that's where I really probably got that learning. So from there, and you can jump in anytime, Ben, if you want to ask any questions about those particular places, but it was often seeing, like often we feel like we need mentors in our life um, and, and that mentor is going to show us all the things that we should be doing. But often my experience in financial advice was watching maybe what I didn't want to be and listening to other advisors talk and going, mm, I'm not going to do it that way. I, I feel like this way is probably better for me. So really sort of maybe seeing what I didn't want to be to create my own style. I don't know if that's been your way, Ben, but um, I think that's pretty common in advice. I think we see a lot of things that we don't want to be. Mm. I think for me, I uh, tend to pick like, I, and I like you, when I started in advice, I had really very little idea what I was doing. Arguably still don't, depending on who you ask, but. Um, <laughs> it's all I, subjective. Exactly. Uh, started just doing basic advice, and in fact, that's where the you know the XY advisor community all sprung from. That uh, I left a really structured business where everything was spoon fed, and went into a small business where I had to figure everything out myself, and then um, was just doing basic super and insurance stuff. And Clayton, he left. He went through Horizon, started his own business, and was figuring a lot of stuff out himself. Adrian, Patty, the same, went through Horizons, um, started a small business off the back of that. And we're all just like figuring out. And Ray J, um, same deal. He went as in as an employee in another business, and we're learning from each other. Had a couple of good mentors and. I'd, I would just pick one thing, one area, and then talk to three or four different people about how they did it, and I would probably pick the best bits. So probably not the – although I suppose you do see a few things that you, you want to avoid, but I would just go, oh, yeah, that seems to gel with my personality or my clients or my values or how I want to – how I picture advice in my mind and then just go that way, and everything changes anyway. So it's like you just pick a starting point and then – and then the market starts giving you feedback and you, you tweak and, you know, go, go, go from there. I was going to say it's, it's really common that advisors often can't look up to someone. It's, it's about looking about what you don't want to be. So, yeah, I had a really good experience um, at PSK. I uh, really got some good exposure to different things. The best thing I think I found at that point was the Astute Wheel tool. Um, I've been a big advocate for the Astute Wheel for a really long time now and I just think... It completely shows and delivers the value to advice in one meeting. Um, and we can talk about that today, if you like, around what the biggest thing for me has been. But I think one of the interesting points I think we should also talk about, just going back to what you just mentioned about some of your colleagues and them starting their own business. Um, I always felt that starting my own business was the right way to go. But And we romanticized that a lot. But I went the other way and went, you know what, I, I'm spending more time talking to the license and you know, the accountant and going through wages and payroll. And so I don't want to be doing that. I'm just, I want to talk to clients. So I went the other way and have since not become self-employed. You mean to tell me you don't enjoy spending two and a half hours on the phone <laughs> with ASIC Connect trying to figure out how to register professional year candidates only to figure out that they changed all the rules and you don't actually need to do that until like they're a provisional advisor now apparently? Oh, no, that doesn't that doesn't get you out of bed in the morning, Matt? Are you sure? Oh, you're crazy, Ben, but no. <laughs> I, um, so I'll, I'll probably go, I'll touch on that probably as we go through the, the timeline, but yeah, 
um, spent some time at PSK, I think it was about four years, and then I met some really great forward-thinking guys from Evalesco. Shout out to the guys at Evalesco. Yeah, so really had a good experience there. I think I may have been there for about two years. And most of these models um, and groups that I joined, I was almost like, I was running my own business, but I was like a subcontractor. So I was fitting into their broader business, but I was sort of growing my own book and, you know, paying a percentage for office space. And then I was keeping the rest. So it was sort of a semi self-employed model. Um, and I got to about two years at Evalesco. I thought, oh, I really want to just try this fully on my own. And again, I think we do romanticize running around business and what it means. And, you know, I think it probably strokes our ego a little bit. Um, so I, I felt compelled to go that way. And that's when I set up Insight Wealth. Um, you know, got some office space, got some admin support. And that was a really eye-opening experience. I, I loved it. But by the end of the four years of running my own business, I think I just got to that point where I felt I was just spending time on all the parts that I didn't like, as opposed to just talking to clients. That's what I'm good at. That's what I like. So why am I spending all this time on other areas that don't excite me? Um, and I'm sure there's some of your listeners that are like that, Ben. What's the sort of feedback? Are you finding people getting a little bit disillusioned with running their own business and financial planning or? Yeah, well, I know that we, because we've been hiring advisors for like uh, a year or so um, and talking to a number of those um, potential candidates for, for our roles, I've found people in a similar position where it's like they're just uh, running their own show, you know, ticking along and it might be might be making a bit of money or like, you know, doing okay. But um, as you've mentioned, that there's bogged down with a lot of the the admin, the all of the things that aren't advice, that aren't why they started a business, but are all entirely necessary in order to to do that. So I think in particular, like the last 12 and a bit months that we've seen this massive uplift in what we need to be doing behind the scenes, which I think is a good thing in a lot of ways in, in terms of protecting clients and ensuring that there is a really high standard for advice, but just means that it's like you need to have a well-resourced machine that's sitting there if you want to be able to work efficiently, if you want to be able to work profitably without doing crazy hours. And, um, yeah, I, so I, I think that there's it's definitely moving that way. And I think probably, the you know, the advisor numbers, some of the consolidation that we're seeing is reflective of that as well. Yeah, I think that was probably my experience too. Um, so doing Insight for a while um, kind of got to the point where I was like, I don't, don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> it was as simple as that. And um, I was very fortunate that I ran into Tony Kofkin uh, in a coffee shop. Um, at Shifley Square there and we basically I just told him how I was feeling and we'd known each other for a while so it was someone that I could confide in and we he basically we had a coffee and he basically bought my business <laughs> after the coffee so we did a basically a handshake agreement to begin with um, which was really great um, and I sort of spoke about how I take everything so personally when it's at my own business and I'm touching every part and I'm finding it hard to let go and I'm, I'm not spending time with the clients that I want to talk to. And it just made sense by that point that I didn't need to be a business owner to be an advisor. Um, and I'd, I'd shout out to like some of your listeners out there that might feel the same way that if they just want to have, come and have a chat um, to myself or the Kofkin Bond team about if they're looking for a, a new home and they're sick of trying to do it themselves and they want to plug into a support system, um, I think that's what 
the team at Poft and Bond have done really, really well. And that's changed my complete view on financial planning. Now I'm actually spending time on the things I actually love and I let go of all the other stuff. Um, so the only word I can give you is liberated. <laughs> and so was it, because I, I feel like that's something that we probably don't hear too much about. We were just chatting a bit offline and it's there is that, you know, romanticism and the sexiness of people starting their own business. I talked to a lot of people about that that journey as well. But uh, I think, you know, having run a business for a bunch of time that, it's not for everybody. Sometimes I feel like it's not for me, um, but like, you know, there is a, there is a lot uh, there. And I think being an advisor is hard as it is, like you say, that you get quite invested with your clients and what's going on. Obviously we've been through a really difficult couple of years, COVID, the disruption to business, disruption for our clients, having to then go into overdrive to look after them through periods where there's a lot of opportunity, investment markets, property markets, interest rates, you know, all of those things. For you, what was the what was the real catalyst to for you to start thinking, look, it's just it just doesn't seem to be working for me? Yeah, I think I didn't enjoy at this time, this is before COVID. So COVID's been great because it's we're now on Teams and Zoom and all those kind of things. Um, if you go back before that, when I was running my own business, I would still see clients after hours. I'd still do home visits because that's what I considered to be of value to the client. I would question that now, but I'm, I was doing a nine to five in the city and then I'd be seeing a client in their home and then it's an hour to get home at night or whatever it was. And I'd be getting home at like nine o'clock. Um, mm. It wasn't fair to the family. It, it just, it wasn't a great way of trying to run a business. And and at the same time, when you're running a business and then you're trying to bring on more staff, you're, you're actually paying yourself last in a lot of cases. So you think of mm. all the risk, you know, all the time involved, you wear it all, and yet you feel like sometimes you're the, the last person to be rewarded. Um, and I think that's really common in business. I think until you get to a certain point where you can hand off more and more things. But as a one-man advisor, watching the changes with Royal Commission watching everything just actually triple in terms of difficulty all of a sudden it was like we're going from one disclosure document to probably nine and you're like i don't know how i'm going to do that (laughs) i have to buy more paper and more ink (laughs) (laughs) but it got to that point where i was like i don't i don't want to do this anymore i don't want to have to think about that i don't want to have to have that discussion with the license and then wear all the other hats that we require and then be able to then talk to my clients. I just I had no capacity left. And I found that I wasn't being the best advisor I could be because you're actually distracted. You can't be. Yeah, yeah, it's a tricky one. I think for me, one of the, the lessons that I got from actually from one of our business coaches uh, at the time that we started growing out our team was that you to pay yourself a, a, a reasonable salary, like a market salary, and do that you know, before you or like at the, at, as as you would for any one of your other team members, because if you don't, then you run the risk that you are paying other people more than you're paying yourself and you're carrying all of the responsibility, the pressure and the stress. And then you can end up resenting your, resenting your team or resenting your business even um, because you're not, you're doing all this stuff and it's like, why aren't I getting, getting, you know, paid at least decently uh, for it. And I think, for me, I found it's like that principle of like effective diets, dieting strategies have smaller plates because you just tend to consume what's there. So it's amazing. You build your salary in and then you're like, okay, well, you make that work. Whereas when your salary isn't in there, well, then that, you know, it's not like you you end up with um, with big piles of money necessarily yeah, that, left over. 
that was a big core of it. Um, I had a great business coach. I believe he might, you might know him, uh, Michael Back. Shout out to Michael Back, one of my favorite humans. I love that guy. Uh, he was so good. I, we'd catch up and have quarterly workshops with him. He was just um, that voice of clarity. He'd point out your blind spots. I think every advisor should actually have someone like that or every advice business. Mm. Um, and what I went to, and this, I started doing this when everyone was sort of on still percentage fees. I moved to a fixed fee retainer model, um, which would often would not have anything to do with products. And I, I used to have this basic math in my head where I'd have sort of 200 families. Sorry, my dog's waking up. Um, I used to have 200 families, or I used to consider them households. And if we're getting around five, five and a half thousand dollars per year in retainers from said 200 families, that there's a viable business there. And you could potentially run that business with one advisor and maybe two really switched on support staff. And that was sort of the model I was going after. I thought that that would work really well, but mm. it got harder and harder and harder. And you find that it's just harder to even sit with clients because you're like, well, I've just got to do all this paperwork, even though you've got staff doing it. So I just, you get to that point where like, ah, oh, I just, do I hire another two people to help make this work or do I have to change my thinking? Do, do I need to be charging $10,000 a year? Do I need to be charging $20,000 a year for said households? Mm. Um, and that's not right for everyone. You can't have a one-size-fits-all model for all your clients. So, yeah, I kind of have to gone back and forward with different models, um, but that's kind of what I thought was required to make it work. Um, and I'm sure a lot of advisors aren't doing that. Yeah, look, I think that with the increased like costs of running a business and the, the input costs as well from a regulation, admin and compliance perspective, I, I, I would question like you for five, $5,000, it's almost like you can't do much outside of doing a, a review for clients. And then, uh, yeah, it's sort of then you're working on retention, then it's like you're chasing your tail. So it unfortunately means that a lot of, people that could use could get a lot of benefit from support aren't getting it um but unfortunately for for advice to the regulators and thankfully they are looking at reducing a bit of the red tape which i welcome with very open arms but um mm. yeah it just means that it's it's almost impossible to to to, to make work at, at that level so yeah i get the challenge matt you mentioned though that like you've gone through almost probably the last almost 10 years really at least you've got you've been working almost like as a business within a business where you've essentially got control over what you're doing you know how you're doing it tell us like through that time when you think about what you do for clients like what's what how has that your service solution evolved over that time it's not to be honest it's not changed a lot um, i've always put a bit big emphasis on a discovery meeting um, so rather than people have a fact find meeting, I'm not, I ask them to fill that out before I even book a meeting. Um, my entry point is you fill out the astute real questionnaire, we'll book in your meeting. We'll have a discovery meeting. I'll absorb the cost of that meeting. And that meeting is all about me gaining context. Um, and if any advisors out there ever want to have a talk about that process, I'm more than happy to share everything that I've done. It's kind of, I've worked it over time and everyone's got their own style, but what I built it down to was what are you looking to avoid is a great question to start with. Because sometimes mm. if I say to you, Ben, hey, Ben, tell me your goals. What do you want? People go, oh, um, I don't know. But if I go, Ben, yeah. tell me what you want. Yeah. And then, and then you can flip that conversation. So I found that that was a really good place to start. Um, and then I would kind of uh, massage that and flesh that out. And then often what I do is cover off on the four L's. 
So where do you want to live? What's the ideal lifestyle? Don't tell me what you think you can have. Tell me about what you really want. Um, we would talk about love. Um, what is it that you love and how do we do more of those things, whether it's people, whether it's hobbies? And then the last one's um, legacy. Who are we trying to look after here? Um, how are you going to be remembered? What do you need to do today to, to, you know, we almost talk about, you know, who's at your funeral, writing your own liturgy type, um, not liturgy, what do you call it? Eulogy. Yeah. Um, it's almost like start with the end in mind and then who are we looking after? Who do you want to give back to? So that's kind of the four L's. And then what I like to touch on is trying to, I'm not a psychologist by any degree, but I do like to tap in and go, tell me about what your parents were like with money. And I can't tell you, Ben, how many times I've run this exercise, but you'll have, and this is very general, but you'd always have one parent that is the one that's, that's switched on with money, frugal, um, is conscious of it, and you've got the opposite. It must be that opposites always attract in relationships. But every time I've run this scenario, I've got, you know, mum was really good with money. She was really switched on. She worked. Dad was always, um, you know, going out, buying flash things, and, and, and they're trying to make it work in a household. And then you ask the other partner and go, well, what, your, what were your parents like with money? And it's kind of always this similar situation where you've got this opposites attract. And then I talk about, well, what do you want your kids to say about you and the way that you handle money? Um, and what advice would you go back and give your parents? What, what advice would you go back mm. and parents at the age that you are now? So, Ben, if you're, what are you now, 23? <laughs> 26. 26. Um, what advice would you go back and tell your parents, Ben, at 26? You know, what would you tell them to think about? Would you tell them to seek advice? Interestingly, when you run that exercise, the very mm. advice that your client should have given their parents is the exact same advice they should be receiving today. So it's a very yeah. interesting exercise. I love that. Yeah, it's great. Very helpful. And if anyone ever wants to pick my brain about that, I'd be more than happy to share that. But mm. what you start doing is you're uncovering how people actually view money, um, what's been inbuilt to them with money, you know, mm. um, if, if there was a frugal lifestyle and that was your the demonstration, um, two things either happen. We either adopt a parent's belief in money or we rebel it. And I found that really interesting as well. Um, so many like spots with that. So if you've ever um, an advisor out there and you want to just try something in a discovery meeting, ask what their parents were like with money. It doesn't matter what age it is and what you get out of that is pure gold. And then you can re frame the conversation from that. You can tell them how it's going to be different going forward and we're going to make prudent decisions and we're never going to go out and buy something flash. We're going to do something good first before you buy something flash. Mm. So that's just a few examples of the discovery process. That gives me the absolute purest gold you can ever think about. And because you've had this great conversation, they are your client. They're not going anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I, I like the your parents' attitude and I have used that one before, but... I've, I haven't used the one to say, well, when someone asks your kids, what do you want, what do you want them to say? Because I feel like mm -hmm. it's it like you, you're really sort of tugging on the psychology or the heartstrings a little bit that it's like you're, you don't want your kid to go say the same thing and then you don't want to be the shitty parent as well. The one oh, that's but, not organised one, you're like, oh. You're but like, if okay. you think about, okay, cool, let's put the words in your child's mouth. Let's put the words in their mouth about what they think about how you handled money and i can tell you what's going to come out it's going to be that you're prudent you made good decisions you invested wisely you saved you probably got some insurance um you addressed it you kept it front of mind like you can go on and on and on if you can articulate that out of a discovery meeting you know everything that needs to happen now um, and i think that 
made me a better advisor, not being scared to ask those questions. And sometimes on a few occasions, they've said, oh, like my dad passed away and my mum had to do everything, but she made good choices. And But then my grandfather stepped in and I was like, well, what was your grandfather like with money then? What, what influence did he give you? So you've got to be able to sort of pivot. Um, pardon the pun there, mate. Um, uh, but you do have to pivot through um, those questions and sometimes you get a few curly ones, but it's such a good process to run through. So if anyone ever wants to pick my brain, hit me up on LinkedIn and I'll um, we can set up a chat. But it's such a such a good process nice one and i'm yeah interested to hear that not that much has changed over you know almost a decade in doing that what do you think like uh, because i see if i'm looking at the process i feel like you're ticking a lot of the the things that i would feel are important and your process is obviously different to ours but similar approach and it's like you push the client to do a bit of homework you know let them know that you're the boss and gonna lead them through this journey and you know take the time to understand them but if if it hasn't changed wholesale, what do you think? Like, uh, is it a, a, a conscious process of refinement that you do with that, or it's just work, so you just don't touch it? Like, um, it's that's changed a lot over time. Um, I think the yeah. core of it is probably the same. I think I got better asking harder questions um, and digging. Sometimes you think you, you've you've struck gold, I guess, if you're digging, and you're like, actually, no, there's more to this. And I think that's actually instincts. I think as an advisor, in those meetings, your instincts actually get better and you ask better questions mm. or you dig further when you should. You've got to poke and prod a little bit more to find out um, because I actually think you're only as good as your questions. I can't tell you how many times I've sat with a client and an accountant and the, the accountant misses all these opportunities for a question. Um, yeah. And then I think about what they've talked about with their tax return and what did you spend? And I'm like... This advice is crap because you haven't asked the right questions. You haven't asked enough. Um, and I think our advice will only ever be as good as our questions. So um, coming back to your question, um, it has definitely changed a lot. Um, and this is kind of probably where I've landed, where I know that I can get what I need out of the, the client and, and the context. Um, the best part about that is, well, how do you make all this real? Um, and I've always liked the idea of building 10-year plans, even if we're talking about super Let's just show what, okay, if we get to the 10-year mark, the rest of it will take care of itself. Um, and I'm always a big believer in not just relying on the super system. You need to be doing things in your own name as well. Um, don't just rely on the super system. I think by the time we retire, that system will be completely different. The rules are so different. Um, let's not just rely on $100,000 tax-free from super. Let's find another way. Let's create more buckets of money. Um, and I'm a big believer in debt. I think you should be getting good debt as earlier in your life as possible. And sometimes you've got these 20, 20, you know, mid-20s, great income, and so just get your hands on some debt and buy some assets. Because um, mm, okay. I think you all know that time is the best investment you've got. And you think about what your parents might have bought their property in Sydney for, and let's say it was $100,000, and now it's worth $2 million 20 years later. Mm. Um, even if you bought a property in a dud area, because you've held it for 20 years, you look like a superstar. So we often talk about time being the, the best investment you have. And gearing tends to win. I copped a lot of grief from advisors. Um, I, I put a TikTok post up about like why property wins over shares. And I love shares and I love property. I think they both have place. The reality mm -hmm. is you compare a, a, a property, a blue chip property geared at 80% or 50% even to a, sh a share portfolio that's not, the property's going to win every time. So um, I think for accumulators, yeah, you've got to be smart and you've got to manage your risk and all that stuff. I think that goes without saying, but 
uh, yeah, it's it's super super effective for those accumulators. It's yeah, putting twenty percent of your own money down, borrowing eighty percent, but getting a hundred percent of the upside with other people's money. And obviously you've got to do that within the right reasons. Sometimes I often think about every time I've done the modeling, I think if you put down a 30% deposit, um, it looks like it's going to be paying for itself or positively geared. So if you've got the capital to do so in a capital city, and I I would encourage people to go out and model that, but 30% deposit, 70% 70 LVR, often looks like it's, it's paying for itself. So if you can replicate that strategy over 10 properties, um, I think it's a great strategy, but I, there is a place for both, mate. I think you need uh, liquid assets and illiquid assets. Totally. Well, look, it sounds like from that engagement that you've you've found a sweet spot where you're um, where you're delivering, I suppose, taking the clients on the journey that you need to deliver the value that they want from the process. I'm keen to hear, like, what do you feel are the biggest learnings that you've made around what what the elements are of what we deliver that clients do actually value most in the last, you know, on the last decade or, you know, even more than that uh, in advice? Yeah. I think the first one is that discovery process and why it works is because if I was sitting there and going, okay, I'm, I'm going to be lifting the hood on my finances and all this stuff and my fears and my goals, I want that person to ask me questions. I want them to go, hang on a second, tell, tell me again about, that goal about the holiday house and like it's got the balcony and just tell me a little bit more about that. I need to understand that. If you go into a meeting like that and you keep digging on someone's initial goal, like it's powerful stuff because you know in detail what they want. So I think the questioning and really kind of fleshing out goals and trying to understand from them why it's important as well is, is just pure gold. So that was an absolute must. I think the second part is making sure that everything we do in financial planning, make it visual. Don't explain it. Don't send it in words. Don't write an email. Visual. So what's been great is the during COVID, um, being able to share your screen on Zoom or Teams, um, often I'll have these wheel calculations up or I've put together a PowerPoint and everything's visual. Don't explain things in, in numbers. Do it in concepts um, because clients go, okay, I don't, I don't necessarily know the detail. I don't know how that's calculated. I don't know the math, but conceptually I understand what you're doing and that makes sense. Um, have you ever tried to explain TPD, ANIOC versus um, ONOC? <laughs> yeah. Use a picture. <laughs> um, so, yeah, try and keep everything visual. That's one of the biggest things. Keep things easy. Um, keep things easy for clients. Um, that would be the biggest. Try and package things up for clients so it's just a no-brainer. Mate, I love it. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your insights. My last question for you is that if you could go back to your uh, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed self, day one in the advice industry, what would be your one piece of advice? Do a degree. <laughs> <laughs> do the do the degree. Um, anything you can get your hands on. No, um, it's a really good question, Ben, because there's so many things that can happen during that time. If I could say one thing would be, yeah, just to hang in there. You've got to hang in there. Advice is, uh, it's a career, it's a long-term career. I'd definitely tell myself to hang in there uh, and keep working at it, keep talking to people, um, create good habits. You know, how many people do you want to talk to a week? What are you going to talk to them about? I would have probably tried to create better structured habits for myself so my time was better used, I think. Yeah. 
And it probably uh, to what you were saying about not, you know, being the, with the business stuff, taking you away from doing that might have given you a bit of a leading indicator that was, you know, you couldn't do the things that you were saying, that you, you know, why you wanted to be an advisor in the first place, right? Oh, totally. I mean, you can only juggle so many balls um, until you're going to drop one. And you better hope that the ball that you don't drop is a compliance one because then all the balls fall. Um, mm. And that's the risk we run as an advisor. So if at any point you are like, you know what? I don't think I can deliver this because I'm too distracted. I've got too much. You need to talk to other groups out there that are looking to grow. And because the one band or the two man band sort of situation, I don't think works anymore. I think they've got to be converging with other firms and those conversations need to be happening. So if there is anyone out there, um, you should be chatting to Ben or I. Well, uh, mate, wise words there. And I, yeah, I, I think that you're right. I think that you have to be pretty on top of stuff um, to make it work at that small scale. I know that there are businesses out there that do it, but it takes a lot of uh, structure, a lot of discipline, and that often comes with a lot of time, which is sometimes hard if you're just trying to you know, figure it all out yourself. So, mate, uh, thank you again so much for sharing your insights. Uh, Thanks. Yeah, great to have you. We'll see you Thanks next time. You. See you soon.